Hello, Capital Region. This is the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. I'm Andrea, I'm Mark Con- Dun- <laughs> I'm Andrea Cunliffe. Hi, Mark. Hi, Andrea. Uh, I'm Mark Dunley. Uh, today, we start off with Ron Doys discussing the state budget and revenue issues. And then we talk with Marsha Hoppel of Women Against War about Iran. Later on, we are very excited to talk about Echoes from Lock One, uh, a documentary for environmental and water justice from the youth in Troy that the sanctuary helped with. Then we talk with Gina Kim, the owner of Shanghi's Farm and Kitchen in Troy, about its role in helping immigrants. And we end up with McKenna Connors, who has a segment on the challenges of creating effective community science centers. But first, news headlines. The Times Union reports that an independent arbitrator cleared Albany City Police Officer Matthew Sieber of all charges last week for his role in the infamous Loud Party incident on March 2019 on 1st Street, where the police kicked in a door, pepper sprayed the crowd, and beat up several people. In response, Mayor Kathy Sheehan wrote a letter to the state board that handles police arbitration, criticizing the arbitrator's radically biased conclusions and asking the board to stop using him. The city has sought to fire three officers and discipline five others. Multiple members of the state legislature are concerned that the assembly's launched investigation into Cuomo instead of formally beginning an impeachment proceedings, is merely buying time for the governor, whose term ends next year. Members of the Judiciary Committee, allegedly overseeing the investigation, apparently had no say in the outside firm hired to conduct the investigation. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden said Governor Cuomo should resign if an investigation confirms claims he committed sexual harassment and that he thinks Cuomo would also be prosecuted if that's the case. Young Parents United hope to build a a $7.5 million project in Schenectady to provide 14 transitional housing units for young mothers. The target population will be mothers under the age of 24 and their children. Parents will stay between 18 and 24 months with up to two children before moving on. Educational and other programs, as well as case management services, will be available to all family members enrolled in the programming, including fathers. Construction of the Albany Skyway, a new half-mile-long elevated park, will begin this month. The project will transform a Clinton Avenue ramp off northbound Interstate 787 and Quay Street in Albany into an elevated park and is scheduled to open by the end of 2021. And Mayor Patrick Madden is encouraging Troy residents to get involved with the annual citywide Earth Day cleanup program next month. Each April, Troy residents, families, 
and business owners organize community-driven cleanup and beautification projects at local parks, green spaces, and neighborhoods across the city. Many environmental groups will be focusing on getting the state and federal governments to enact stronger climate action agendas for Earth Day to save life on the planet. That's it for news headlines. The state legislature this week passed their own one house house budget resolutions. I talked with Ron Deutsch of New Yorkers for Fiscal Fairness about how the tax the rich effort is going. We're talking with Ron Deutsch, um, the former executive director of the Fiscal Policy Institute and a consultant with uh, New Yorkers for Fiscal Fairness. Uh, earlier this week, the uh, state legislature uh, released its one house uh, budget resolutions, and we now have a few weeks before the state finalizes its budget. One of the big issues, of course, has been uh, how much will we tax uh, the rich? There were various proposals. Uh, some of our friends uh, invest in New York up to that $50 billion um, threshold. Not quite where the legislatures ended up. They're talking about seven to eight uh, billion dollars of increased revenues. So, uh, Ron, what's your assessment of how well the legislature has done with respect to um, making the wealthy New Yorkers pay the fair share of the tax burden? You know, I, I think the legislature in particular and their one house budget bills have done a, a great job at um, really putting forward revenue raisers. Um, that asked those at the very top of the income spectrum to pay a little bit more uh, in taxes. And I think that's been something that many of us have been calling for for years now, whether it's, you know, unions or community groups or human service providers, uh, faith groups. Everybody has really been pushing for additional revenue because we've been so starved uh, of revenue in the last decade or so as a result of things like the 2% state spending cap. Uh, which has resulted in mass disinvestment in a wide variety of programs and services that so many New Yorkers care about. So, you know, uh, this is uh, quite frankly more than the legislature uh, has proposed uh, in, in my memory. Um, so, you know, I'm pretty excited. And certainly we want to make sure that this is the floor, right? That we don't you know, negotiate below seven plus billion dollars in additional revenue, but that this is the floor and hopefully, you know, we might even go up from that. Now, while we hope this is the legislature and Ron Deutsch's floor, do we have a sense that this is uh, Andrew Cuomo's floor or is it his ceiling? You know, obviously the governor, you know, made some very um, weak revenue proposals, in my opinion. Um, you know, he did do a PIT increase, which was a step in the right direction. But unfortunately, when we need the money the most, he's really starting to rebate it back um, to the wealthiest among us. So the governor's plan basically does call for basically, in a sense, a prepayment of taxes in 21 and 22. Uh, and then in 23, 24, you basically get to write that off of your um, taxes as well. So, you know, the governor's plan, um, you know, we don't think is the right plan for New York. So we would suggest certainly that the income tax proposals from the Assembly and Senate, which are fairly similar, um, and that they both raise, um, you know, upwards of $4 billion, um, the Senate version about 4.1 for um, the coming year, and the Assembly version about 4.3 billion, 
Um, they both increased the top rates to 11.85%, um, which you know is still well below California's top rate um, and continues to keep us competitive uh, here in New York. So you know, uh, obviously the folks on the other side of this are already screaming that the wealthy are going to leave, um, which is their annual mantra whenever we talk about increasing taxes on uh, the wealthiest, which really, you know, New York State has the greatest income inequality of any state in the nation. So this is one way to start to rectify that situation. Now, one of the, you know, driving forces for revenue increases um, has been the uh, shortfall in revenues to, due to uh, COVID. So, so one question I would have is whether the proposals being advanced um, by both houses, are, are these seen as permanent increases in the uh, tax base for New York, or are they, you know, a one or two year fix um, to get us through the present COVID crisis? Most of them are permanent. And, and let's remember this, right, that, you know, we are getting a substantial amount of money from the federal government. And that's really going to help us deal with our budget gap for this current year uh, and next year. Um, but that's a temporary fix, right? That money dries up in, in a year and a half. Um, and then we're kind of back to where we were, where, you know, quite frankly, for the uh, for three years and, and looking out, you know, we're looking at $10 billion budget gaps after these, these federal dollars dry up. Um, so we need to be responsible here, the legislature, the governor, um, and raise enough money to make sure that we can close those budget gaps uh, in the future and, quite frankly, still fund the, the services that desperately need to be funded. Now, you talked about, you know, increase in the um, top income tax rate for the wealthiest New Yorkers, but, but also reading some of the news articles, you know, they're saying that the legislature, in fact, balked at increasing uh, particularly taxes targeting billionaires. How did the billionaires manage to win in this fight? Uh, you know, I, I think what they did was um, they did not include the billionaires mark to market tax in their budgets. Um, I'm not and, sure. And, and what is that? The billionaires mark to market tax would basically uh, tax unrealized capital gains from uh, billionaires uh, as a way to generate uh, revenue and to make them pay their fair share. But sadly, um, that did not make it into either budget. Um, but, you know, the good news is that the legislature does a number of things and both the Assembly and Senate seem to be in agreement on this. They also raise an additional billion dollars from increasing the corporate franchise tax. Uh, in New York State. Um, and, you know, we, we currently have a pretty low corporate franchise tax of six and a half percent in New York. Um, so the Senate is looking at increasing that to nine and a half percent. The uh, Assembly has a, a virtually a similar plan, if you will, but uh, they both raise about a billion dollars um, from large corporations by increasing their uh, tax rate. We, and they also, uh, as a way to get at some of the capital gains, um, you know, both houses actually increase, uh, uh, put in place a capital gain surcharge of 1% on capital gains uh, for people with income, say, over a million dollars. Um, the assembly version is a little bit different, um, but they both generate in the neighborhood of about 600 to 700 um, million dollars. So uh, again, 
you know, th these are not insignificant uh, revenue raisers. These are substantial. Uh, and yeah, would we like to see more revenue raised? Absolutely. But, you know, I would say uh, the Assembly and Senate have done some excellent work here uh, in putting together a package that, that really targets those who can afford uh, to pay additional dollars because quite frankly, they've been making, you know, all the income gains uh, since this pandemic began. I mean, you think about the fact that New York's 118 billionaires, we have more billionaires than any place else on the planet. Those folks since the beginning of the pandemic have seen their incomes increase by $88 billion. And that's oh, 80 billion. We're beginning to run out of time. So let me get two more questions in. So uh, I understand the, uh, what do you call it? The Pierre Etier, the sort of second homes for wealthy in New York City in particular, didn't make it and I understand sort of the carbon tax pollution penalty fee, $15 billion, uh, nowhere at this point, you know, um, why not the first and on the pollution penalty, can that be done post budget in 90 seconds? Um, so on the first, uh, the assembly does a kind of version of a pied-a-terre, if you will, um, that would generate about $300 million. It's basically a tax on owners of high value second homes in New York City. Uh, and they also um, include mezzanine debt, uh, which is basically what when uh, private equity firms uh, purchase real estate, they purchase it in cash. So they don't have to pay a mortgage recording tax like everybody else does when they actually buy a home. So, you know, um, those that's included on the assembly side, not the Senate side. Um, but well, mezzanine debt is included on the Senate side, but so, yeah, you know, I, I think, are there things that could and should still be in here? Sure. Um, do we hope that they still make it in? Absolutely. But, you know, as they go to negotiations now, uh, we're going to see what the final outcome is, but our hope is that the Senate and the assembly, uh, hold steadfast uh, and uh, push forward with their revenue package. Well, as always, I assume this is a moment if people concerned about any of these issues, contact your state legislature. This has been uh, talking with Ron Deutsch, uh, consultant for New Yorkers of Fiscal Fairness. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. So we'll certainly be having uh, a lot more information about budget negotiations over the next 10 days. And as Ron pointed out, uh, the fact that the legislature is looking at an extra seven to eight billion dollars in revenue, primarily from the wealthy, um, much progress over past years. But at the same time, you know, sort of the more younger maverick types and, and some of the downstate younger people like DSA recoil for 50 billion dollars. So really, uh, you know, sort of a big gap. And I think the issue of to what extent you know, the legislature really has significantly moved to the left following the recent elections. Um, still very much an open question. Um, but over to you, Andrea. And for our weekly peace bucket, which comes up next, Mark talks with Marsha Hoppel of Albany Women Against War about the group's effort to encourage President Biden to restore the nuclear agreement with Iran. We're talking with uh, Marsha Hoppel, who has been an occasional guest here on the Peace Bucket for Hudson Mohawk Radio Network, and she's a, a member of um, Albany Women Against War, particularly focused on the Iranian situation. 
But, you know, Marcia, maybe just uh, store off a little bit background. You know, what what is Women Against War, uh, you know, up to these days? Well, Women Against War goes back a long way uh, to the time when we were opposing, uh, attacking Iraq. Uh, and we had a, a, a sort of a launch event for ourselves that turned out to launch us into a longstanding organization that's still active. And that event was a women's fast for peace. It got a lot of publicity. It got a lot of people to join in, a lot of women. Uh, and it, it, it really bonded women together who have continued to be lead volunteers with Women Against War and have brought in friends and gotten out on the streets together. Um, so Women Against War now has been quiet during the pandemic, although our one project called Pathways to Peace has been very active and also Grannies for Peace has continued. Those are projects of Women Against War. They have continued to get uh, word out by way of streaming and uh, films on uh, the internet and so forth. Uh, The project that I've been particularly active with is called the Iran Project. It has uh, focused for many years on Iran, especially when Iran became kind of a model the uh, the Iran uh, nuclear agreement became kind of a model of international diplomacy. Uh, so, you know, what I can tell you about most uh, directly is what we worked on that way and how we're trying to revive it under President Biden. So, so why don't you give us an update? Obviously, you know, during the Trump administration, he, you know, um, got rid of it. And, you know, there's this whole power um, you know, fight that goes on in the Middle East and, you know, the United States, particularly aligned with Saudi Arabia who, and Israel, of course, uh, both of whom are very much uh, antagonistic, you know, with, with Iran. You know, so what are you hoping that, you know, the Biden administration will do in, in terms of trying to reestablish a, a more civilized relationship with, with Iran? Well, let me start by saying that uh, what our group of women has tried to do is to, uh, through all the history with Iran, and especially, as I say, got kind of more focused when there was the opportunity under President Obama and Secretary of State um, John Kerry to have this kind of diplomatic triumph of an international agreement about a an issue such as the Iranian nuclear program, uh, but it could have been about any number of issues. Anyway, our our attempt has been to lift up the people of a nation like Iran and remind everyone that there are people there. It isn't just a regime. It isn't just a Ayatollah. Uh, it isn't just the president of Iran. It's real people. It's children and so forth. We've often used images of Iranians as a way of trying to get that message across. Uh, that uh, travelers there took for us. And so it's important for us to keep doing that. And we're very opposed to sanctions. Uh, They seem to us to be an act of war and certainly an act of provocation to war. Uh, And they've been especially harsh and long lasting and illegal in terms of Iran under the the agreement that was, uh, the the one we're gonna talk about, uh, the, the Iranian nuclear agreement. Uh, so we're, I could go on about what we're hoping for, but I thought if you want, I can give you a little more background on where we're coming from. Sure. Um, we're, we're, uh, we're very uh, a p- much a part of the loud uh, na- international um, support for the Iranian agreement. And I think we should talk just for a minute about why that seems so important. 
It involved world powers like France and the United States and Germany and even China. And it, it really was a, an amazing thing to get together and it took years. And what, when you asked about what we're hoping for from Biden, we were encouraged, for instance, recently when Biden's administration was getting started, that he appointed or uh, nominated for Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, who had been with state under Kerry and who had been a chief negotiator, along with his now deputy, I think she's been confirmed deputy uh, Secretary of State, uh, Wendy Sherman, who was the chief negotiator with Iran and for the international group that resulted in what's called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, that's the agreement with Iran. Uh, so we we hoped uh, that that meant that um, he would hit the ground running, or he it was said that he hoped he'd hit the ground running with those people in his administration. Um, but of course, there's so many conflicting forces that are pushing and pulling, uh, and and there's the the long history of the United States kind of being there in the first place in this position of caring about Iran or or um, being so belligerent and so suspicious and paranoid about Iran is, is that um, probably the only real reason that we've paid so much attention and gotten ourselves in such deep trouble with Iran or cause, causing thinking of them as causing trouble is because there's oil there and because they're in the Middle East and because Israel uh, considers them an existential threat to Israel uh, that we really regret that it, and we really, feel that it's ridiculous, actually, that uh, the United States has continued and Biden even continues to, uh, for instance, works uh, or worry so much about Iran's nuclear program when most of the powers that are negotiating or did the negotiations before and we're hoping we'll come back to it also are nuclear powers and why uh, we continue to single out Iran and uh, sort of waste all this time is is puzzling. Well, you think, you mentioned the the issue of oil, and you know, of course, it was the United States who engineered the overthrow of the democratically elected government uh, of Iran when uh, that Iranian government decided that the oil resources should be to the benefit of the Iranian people rather than American multinational oil companies, and that brought in the Shah, who was of course quite brutal and you know eventually people you know overthrew uh, the shah but that also ushered in uh, the rule of the you know sort of extreme you know uh, religious leaders which have created you know additional problems and obviously a lot of people are very concerned that the united states antagonism towards uh, the iranian government actually undercuts the movement of the iranian people to elect a more democratically moderate uh, government. But but one thing, of course, that occurred recently was that when uh, the Biden administration attacked, allegedly the first public attack, but reality, as Medea Benjamin pointed out last week, the United States is constantly bombing countries in the Middle East. But when uh, they attacked Syria uh, recently with the military strike, uh, that was actually considered uh, an attack on Iran uh, because what the United States was claiming was these militias that were operating in Syria were actually Iranian-backed, you know, militia. Um, and so they wanted to send a signal to Iran. So, you know, in the last, you know, 90 seconds, how, how do, how should people in the capital district try to help get this Iranian situation resolved and press the Biden administration on this? Well, through their congresspeople, um, 
I suppose, um, and also just by paying more attention and learning more about who uh, people like the Iranians are and countries like Iran are, uh, because so much of it is hard to follow, is very complicated, has convoluted history. Uh, it takes some work, but if people understand, then they may do more or they may feel more empowered to do things to try to get this country's military reduced and to get this country's to try to be more into diplomacy than into military action. Uh, and uh, and one of the reasons for the Iran agreement, one of the outcomes was supposed to be that it would bring Iran into international trade and back into some status with the other countries instead of being isolated by international sanctions. Um, and that unfortunately got lost when Trump, which we need people to understand who are listening to this uh, interview that uh, Trump uh, took the United States out of the agreement in 2018. It was a 2015 agreement and the United States never had done its part under the agreement, let alone leaving it. They had never reduced sanctions under it the way they were obligated to. We were we're, we're out of time, unfortunately. If people want more information about Women Against War, you have a website or Facebook page? There's a Women Against War website, which is simply womenagainstwar.org. And we welcome you to take a look there. Uh, and you're certainly welcome to contact uh, me or uh, and I can help you to connect if you want to the organization and one of its projects uh, that interests you. And it's Marsha and my number is 518-283-5353. Thank you very much, Marsha Hoppel, Women Thank Against you. War. And this has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. One of the things we didn't get to in that discussion is the fact that the Biden administration is not satisfied with just restoring the agreement negotiated by Obama, but actually trying to put on some additional contingent uh, conditions, uh, such as uh, some curtailment of uh, missile capacity, uh, and, and that just makes the likelihood of progress with Iran much more difficult. Uh, but you can tune in every Wednesday at 6.15 for our weekly Peace Bucket. During the annual Uptown Summer Program based at the Sanctuary for Independent Media, the documentary short film Echoes from Lock One, recorded, scripted, and edited by youth in collaboration with Uptown Summer staff and visiting artists, we speak now with editor Kathy Rafferty, Katie Rafferty, about her role in completing this project. So Katie, you and the rest of the crew must be so very proud and pleased that your film Echoes from Lock One is premiering at the all virtual environmental film festival in the nation's capital from March 18th to 28th this year. This, well, gosh, this weekend it starts. How do you feel about that? Hi, Andrea. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, yeah, we're really excited that it's going to be premiering this weekend. Uh, the staff at the festival has been really accommodating with the virtual platform that they've taken this year. Uh, normally, we would have actually been able to go down to DC. Unfortunately, we can't do that this year. But with it being online, uh, it's even more accessible more people around the world can watch it because you can just buy a ticket and go on and stream it for the duration of the festival. So we're really excited. 
Well, Echoes from the from Lock One is an investigation um, really about the past, the present, and the future of the Hudson River in North Troy. And the youth put this together uh, from, from the youth in North Troy. I understand there were investigations that were ecologically critical to the Hudson River uh, estuary. And it's right, it's on that area where it meets the Erie Canal, right? Right here in North Central Troy. Yeah. 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 That's correct. Um, North Central. Yeah. Go ahead. No. No. We're just going to ask what historical investigations and research uh, and science was 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 done, and how was it shown? Was it all filmed? Yeah. It was all filmed. So during the Uptown Summer Program, the youth in the program participate in a variety of different investigations. So uh, one aspect of the summer they were doing water quality testing for PCBs or polychlorinated biophenols in the river. So there was a science piece to it. And then there was also a history investigation into the history of Rensselaer County, the history of the Erie Canal, uh, reading different literature that was talking about the canal. Like the author Moby Dick lived in Troy. He actually based his story on his own uh, whaling ship adventures and uh, they also read Paul Lawrence Dunbar and looked at Thomas Cole paintings um, and they also did musical and art investigation uh, creating their own song which you can hear in the film talking about their call for action for water justice and they also created artwork uh, with Brendan Ballinger uh, visiting artists as well. Well, I know that during that Uptown Summer Program, they worked with, with media makers as well and scientists. So how did all that work out? How did it all get combined into the film? That was your job, right? Yeah, that's correct. So um, during Uptown Summer 2017 was when all of this was filmed. And I came during Uptown Summer 2018. I was an intern and I joined the project in its post-production stage. And a lot of it was just managing all of these different assets. So there was multiple people shooting different cameras, uh, different people who had already had their hands on the edit. So I came in and kind of reorganized the project with Brenda Miller, arts and education coordinator at the sanctuary. And we really worked together creating different cuts uh, using, uh, note cards and like physically storyboarding out the project on paper and that really helped uh, in terms of the organization making sure each of the pieces flowed together and told the complete story of that summer because there was a lot of things that happened that summer. Was it all done just during one summer break or was it done over a longer period of time? It was all filmed the during the program so the program right. is about six to eight weeks long, I believe. Wow. Um, and then when we were editing, uh, I was still a student at the time. Uh, I recently graduated from Rochester Institute of Technology where I had studied photojournalism. So after I left the summer of 2018, I came back a few months later and worked over the winter break with Branda and then subsequently worked more remotely when I was still a student. And so we ended up finishing the edit a complete year later. Uh, and then we also had to pass it off to our uh, 
audio mix person and our color person and they had to uh, do the final exports. So the whole process took maybe about uh, a year and a half. So how long is the film in its, in its finished state? It's about 26 minutes. Oh, wow, good. It's in the shorts category for the uh -huh. environmental festival. How many um, of the youth organization, how many youths and teens worked in that project with you? Um, I believe there were about a dozen kids uh, or youth wow. who were part of the program. And uh, there was also a countless number of mentors that came in. Um, they're all listed in the credits. There was um, a First Nations Mohawk hip artist, JOC, and he came and helped them uh, write lyrics to their own song. And then Jamel Mosley was there shooting as well. And Kathy High, who um, is coordinator for the Nature Lab at the Sanctuary, helped with um, the scientific testing. And she also shot some of the film as well. So it was all, uh, people had many hats uh, in the filmmaking process. And I think that's really what it means when we say it's a participatory documentary. So any way that you can and wanted to participate, people were doing many different jobs to make so this film happen. The young people working on this project were able to learn about different aspects of film production, about audio recording and script writing and dance and movie production. So everyone got a chance to sort of get their hand, feet wet in, in the filmmaking process, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Uh, two of this, the Uptown Summer youth also were filming on the project as well. Brilliant. So in this experimental participatory documentary, um, what, what's the image or what's the message that this, that the filmmakers were trying to give us with this film Echoes of Lock One. What's the message they're trying to, to bring to us? So I would say the message that the youth really are trying to send out is for justice and for our future, no more waiting. That's a echo, a literal echo that you can hear throughout the film. There's a song at the beginning and at the end kind of bookending the entire summer experience. And I think that phrase really drives home that water justice has to uh, not wait any longer. We need to take action now. And that's Unfortunately, brilliant. we're out of time. I understand you can um, at least see the trailer on the uh, Sanctuary Independent website. Yes, it's on the Media Sanctuary YouTube page as well as I believe you can view it on the uh, dceff.org. That's the website for the film festival premiere that we're having this weekend. Well, thanks, Katie, so very much for being here. And uh, we'll look forward to the film. Thank you so much. So Gina Kim is the uh, founder of Sun He's Farm and Kitchen. And this tight-knit community is a business built on sharing cultures over food. Uh, Gina sees community engagement as foundational to their mission. Sunhees is a restaurant in downtown Troy with the mission of positive food culture, community engagement, and immigrant and refugee empowerment. I spoke with owner and founder Gina Kim to learn more about the core aspects of Sunhees Farm and Restaurant. 
We are just about to celebrate actually our fifth year anniversary this coming year. We, you know, came with this vision of having a, a business that could share um, our, our culture, our identity. My my parents are pretty involved. My my mom is one of the main chefs in the kitchen alongside her and her best friend. And the name Sunhee is actually comes from them. Their names are Sunhua and Chunhee. We took either side of the names to make Sunhees. And we've been very involved with the community, sharing um, Korean food at a different level where we understand that our clientele and the communities that we're serving aren't necessarily Korean. And for us, that was actually a very refreshing thing where um, we're, we're introducing something new. A lot of people come to our restaurant never having tried Korean food. So we have this role. And, and my, I myself, too, as a Korean American, we find ourselves in this constant role of acting as a bridge between generations between languages and cultures and so i think sunny's has really become the epitome of what that could look like when when you're using food as that medium but also of course um, with a mission that's much deeper than than what you're eating itself can you do your best to give our listeners the experience of your food what does it look like and taste like and smell like like what is the experience of coming to sunny's when you ask about the experience as with any other like food restaurant experience I think what I look to and start with is really the space. You know, even when you walk in, who is it that greets you and and what's the overall feel and vibe and what kind of music do you hear? What do you smell? Like, just like what you were saying with all these different uh, sensories that come into play. And I feel like our, our space in itself is very welcoming. It was created by myself and my dad. Like we we would come there after work hours and, and just we poured our hearts and souls into the space. And so you really feel that even when you come in, you get this sense that like you're, you're walking, you're going into someone's home, that it's not something that a developer came in and just created, but it took a lot of you know time, thoughtfulness, you know, sweat <laughs> and, and labor into it. The food itself is presented in a very minimalist, simple sort of way where we kind of moved away from some of the more traditional approaches with Korean food, where you just like throw a bunch of things out on the table. You don't, you have no idea what it is. You have a menu, you know, that's multiple pages long. So for us, again, we took a step back. We thought if we're being introduced to a new cuisine, how can it be, you know, less like overwhelming, more pointed and and educational in a way. And so for us, starting with the menu, you know, the the feel of the paper and the design, the the fact that it fits onto one page. But for us, it was just so important that with the food, we wanted to meet people where they're at. And when it comes to the flavors, you you really taste the freshness of it because um, we we make a point of making everything you know fr- fresh to order, but also knowing where the food itself comes from, especially the ingredients and uh, sourcing from our farm when we can. And I think when it comes to the kitchen and the care and attention that not only the chef but all of our staff put into the food, it, it is extremely detailed and. We, we make a point of understanding the, the, the history of Korean food and where that comes from. And the thing about Korean food is that it's very pure. I, I guess that's like the best word I can use to describe it. it there are only a handful of uh, ingredients that really go into Korean food, but it, it brings out the nature and the flavors that are present in the ingredient itself. So you can have the exact same kind of like list of ingredients and spices, but depending on what what ingre- the core ingredient that you're using, the flavor will change dramatically. And I think that's really 
one of the best things about Korean food is that it, it looks at the qualities of the food and it brings it out rather than masking over it or putting sauce all over it. And, and it's, it's very clean uh, for that reason. And you mentioned your farm. So you source partially from your farm or whenever you can. Could you, how, uh, what is the connection between the two and why did you decide to do both a restaurant and a farm? So my parents actually moved onto the farm prior to the restaurant. This was back in 2012. We started the restaurant in 2016 and they moved there and they had the farm without any sort of intention or plan to uh, knowing that we're going to be involved in a, in a restaurant. But I, I think it was this whole shift in, in their mentality and movement of, of being very health focused. And um, again, like really asking where it is that our ingredients and food is sourced from. And from that, we, we learned a tremendous, a tremendous amount as a family from, um, you know, spending time on that farm. Everything from the labor it goes into, you know, growing a, a seedling into the finished product that actually goes on the shelf. The farm itself is still very much family run. It's not, nowhere near commercialized. My parents are, are living there right now. And we've been fortunate enough recently to open up that space uh, prior to COVID to do summer dinners and farm dinners and, and kimchi workshops right on the fields. And that's been really great because people can see how uh, our, our family lives, but they can be involved directly and, and know that the restaurant is connected to that farm. A big part of your mission is the community, which isn't something I think in a lot of uh, restaurants' missions. How do you make community a part of your work? Mm. How do you make community a part of your work? It's one of those things, it comes so naturally, but then you also have to be extremely intentional. I, I think the natural part is the fact that the restaurant itself exists because of our community. You know, we, we started the restaurant with a clear mission of why we're going into it, of knowing that we're immigrant-based. You know, we want to specifically target immigrant communities and work, partner and work with immigrant families and individuals to, to empower through education and employment. So I think that was kind of like the foundation of it and everything else stemmed from that. And I tell everyone, you know, so many things have changed in the course of our business and, and the plans that we've made, especially with COVID, but the mission has always been so core and essential to who we are. And so I guess that's the natural part. But then, like I said, the intentional part is really the, uh, the question of why, right? The reasoning, the, 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 that sense of purpose, and always going back to that when we make certain decisions, everything from you know, expense decisions, financial decisions, uh, hiring decisions, um, and what even when we made the decision to initially close down the restaurant midday so that our staff could attend English classes, you know, we had to weigh out certain things and understand that our resources are limited. We have to understand that we need to choose people first. I love that. That's, I mean, <laughs> it seems common sense, but <laughs> not always the case, right? And so COVID, obviously you have to talk about it. It's been a huge impact on restaurants and how have you been navigating? How have you and your restaurant, your staff, how has everybody been navigating this time? And it's also worth mentioning that immigrants have been hugely hit from this and have, yeah, have for sure. had worse, some of the worst impacts. So how how has Sunhees been doing and, and the larger community? The, the way I like to think about it, it's, it's really been a season of pruning, you know, like 
you know, when you, I, I guess the whole farm thing, right, is coming out now. It's, it's <laughs> when you prune things. I mean, actually, I'm not really a farmer, so I don't know how things work. But my understanding of pruning and trees is that when you do it, you know, you have to cut off the branches that are no longer cutting, uh, producing fruit in order for that tree to grow more. Otherwise, it kind of comes at a standstill. And, and so I think with COVID, we found that we've had to, you know, shed off those extra layers that weren't either core to who we were or weren't fruitful. And, and what I mean by that is not like, not, it's not in a utilitarian way, but I think it's really about identifying the things that are important to us in this time. You know, like knowing that we have even more limited time and resources and how are we going to allocate that to make sure that again, we're true to our mission and, and that we're investing into the things that actually matter. Whereas before um, it, wasn't as much of an issue we had a little bit more freedom and flexibility but especially in the early months of covid we found very much from a from a like an expense and financial standpoint we have to be like okay like we don't need this you put your money where your mouth is and so we wanted to continue investing into our like english programs even though it wasn't producing anything financially and then um, and also the well-being of our staff that was kind of the first questions we asked when covid happened was you know, how can we still make sure our staff are taken care of? Because there's the larger collective, but then, of, of course, the individual needs. And we realized everybody's needs were different because we work with both immigrants and non-immigrants. And even amidst immigrant populations, you know, some people were actually you know, pretty fine. Like others were having a much more difficult time depending on where they lived. I, I was also saying before that the flip side of things, it wasn't just that we were taking care of our staff, but we found that it was really our staff that was taking care of the business and taking care of, you know, Sonny's. And, and it's because of the staff that Sonny's was able to survive throughout the pandemic. And that was Asina Basilica Hickey speaking with Sonny's creator and owner, Jaina Kim. To learn more about where to find them, visit their website website at sunhees.com. That's S-U-N-H-E-E-S.com. For our last segment this evening, McKenna Connors discusses with Professor Paul Venus the challenges of creating effective community science centers. What are your thoughts on experiential learning and how it can improve scientific literacy? Well, I think uh, it does several things. On the one hand, it's a natural um, uh, experiential learning tends to be uh, an approach to science that, that builds upon people's curiosities and things which are maybe not sort of uh, things that are taking place outside of a curriculum that can maybe seem a little dry and can offer them a chance to have a more, um, a more engaged, playful, um, less academic, probably a, a, a relationship to this that is outside of feeling like these are just grades or, or, or abstractions of scientific information. So I, I think experiential learning, yes, it's, it's definitely fosters uh, deeper curiosity. And, uh, and I think it also engages people who might, um, so that people who are interested in the outdoors for some reason or another wind up realizing how oh, there's also these really interesting sort of scientific angles on, on, on what that on what that is. For instance, an artist who might be interested in um, uh, landscape as a, a aesthetic phenomenon might become very excited by all things that happen as you move through that space with a 
to guide with a certain expertise as well. How do you think community science centers could benefit the community? Well, I think they have the chances again to be an extracurricular activity, something that, that you're attending without uh, all the baggage of your usual of your usual academic school experience. Um, that's one thing. Again, they can also be a place where these alternate learning activities take place. So if you can be uh, more experiential, more experiential than, than things that happen in the classroom. Three, I suppose it gives a chance for a different kind of mentorship that people are just hearing information from uh, another, another source who, again, is outside the kind of disciplinary apparatus of, of the school system. It can be something that they engage also with people in, in mixed age groups. Um, a lot of times it can be that kids who are a certain age really respond to, you know, having older kids around that can be sort of like, yeah, again, kind of mentor figures or they, they can model themselves after. And in other cases, some people really like to teach. So some kids will really find that, wow, I really like being with younger kids and being able to, to, to sort of um, be, a, be a role model to them. So it, it sets up all kinds of unconventional way, relationships to, to knowledge and information and asking of questions that, that, that might not happen in any other situation. So, I think the other thing is, is, is that I think these, these kind of science centers, uh, you know, like a community centers like this, they, they tend to, by the very nature, be emphasize the more hands-on component of, of, of a science, which is, is often closer to a kind of um, a, a way of learning that um, a lot of people prefer. Yeah. Um, so what are your thoughts on the relationship between scientific literacy and self-advocacy in regards to health and environmental safety and well-being? Yeah, I mean, this is this is really intense right now because we're in a really tricky moment, right, where we're, people are torn between a kind of a, a, help, a healthy skepticism uh, of, of the expert that might have, um, that might have ulterior motives and, uh, and learning that there are there's an expert culture of that that we've relied upon to 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 be able to make good decisions about yes our environment about our, our health about our bodies about our, our, our ecosystems this is this is a big one because I mean I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to say that like everybody who um, who gets a baseline scientific literacy in a community uh, science lab should go about thinking that that now they're ready to um, Sort of second guess um, anything they're learning elsewhere, but I do think that this idea of, of people becoming informed in genuine ways and sort of learning even when what learning even if they want to be skeptical um, that 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 skeptical isn't just about sort of throwing one's hands up in the air and believing anything, but it's about sort of figuring out the best the best ways to to go to find. To find information that's been agreed upon by by disinterested people with a deep background in what they're in what they're talking about. By by disinterested, I mean just people who are maybe getting a big financial in, incentive from from their ecological perspective. So sometimes you don't want to go to the very company that is doing the polluting to ask the questions. That would be an interested party, but you want to go to a to someone who is researching this outside of a certain profit mode. And again, these terms are tricky, right? I mean, what is object, you know, objectivity is a, is a tricky concept that's <laughs> relatively new in our history. But yes, the idea is to try to find, you know, uh, 
uh, you know, to understand that this is, again, this is a really, really sticky, tricky question you ask, because I think one of the things that, that even in college, we're, you know, dealing with college students in academia, we're trying to understand is what does it mean? What is a fact? And the fact isn't the truth, but a fact is something which was arrived at by a consensus of a peer review community, uh, which has been growing and sort of becoming more and more qualified over over years and sometimes centuries. And uh, and so to understand the way a fact is made and to be able to trace the kind of literatures and to be able to see and to also be able to, to kind of read the environment, you know, to also understand with one's own eyes what's happening and, and have a have both the kind of empirical sense of what's going on around me as well as a kind of legalistic joy and kind of understanding the ways in which information has gotten to you is really key. But, but this is, this is a big one. And I, I think this isn't something that, this isn't something that any single community center can necessarily achieve on its own. I, I think this is something that's a, a big societal issue right now. And it's going to take a lot of different institutions and, it's going to take a lot of different people to get together to help. What suggestions would you have for those who are seeking to create community science centers and labs designed for public use? You know, one of the things, one of the things that I've realized and in, in my lab, I, I run a lab called the Coalesce Center for Biological Art at, at the University of Buffalo. And um, one of the things I realized in creating that center was that you want to take advantage of the things that you want to take advantage of, of, the opportunities that are there that might have been missed. So for instance, certain science centers might have the advantage of being really in a great place in the community, right? Like literally geographically in a great spot, but maybe they don't have as, as great uh, access to all the university's resources, right? Maybe they're a little further from the university or on the, or on the contrary, there's things, some things that are siloed in the university that don't have act that, that have a hard time attracting people in. Other times there's there's access to a facility that already has all the, the kind of all the infrastructure in place to do something very well. And other times they don't. So, so I think one of the things you can you have to do is, is to kind of realize what kind of stuff is already in place to, to make your center a success and, and and to and to take advantage of that and to utilize it. Right. Um, one of the frustrations I have about my center is, is I'm I'm kind of siloing the campus, which is very difficult for people to get to. And there, that means there are some ways that I, I have access to a lot of great things in that silo. But if I want to really have a deep relationship with the community, I really have to seek it out. I have to either go into go have to reach out to the schools to bring their students to us, or I have to find other um, temporary pop up places to do things. So for me, the challenge isn't so much. The, the the science end of it, but the challenge is really getting the community to us, right? And every place that you find is going to have certain advantages and disadvantages. I think it's just like it's important to know how to, you know, how to embrace the things that your 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 situation does well and take advantage of those, and and uh, certainly not overlook them as things you ought to be working with, and and then to also then realize you know what, where where the shortcomings are and and the areas which which you need to which you're going to need to actually really work to make successful for, for instance this would also be the case like you might have a, a center which is is in the middle of an amazing ecological resource where you can walk out the door and you can just look anywhere 
and you'll have things to talk about and you'll have ecosystems to describe and you know a, a naturalist paradise but then again some of those places it can be tricky to get to because there's not a you know there's not public transportation to those places and because you know they're they're maybe even far from far enough from uh, a, a city that you know by the time you get there it's 45 minutes away so yeah every place has its advantages and disadvantages i think to, to sometimes just kind of you know to to recognize what you have in a place and recognize then what you need to what, what will be very hard work to kind of make successful yeah how does your perspective as an artist influence your understanding of science and community outreach? Well, I, I came into this as a non-expert, right? As a, as a, someone really trained primarily in the arts. So I am particularly interested in things they can bring to that. I'm particularly interested in talking to people who also have either a non-scientific background or a sort of more interdisciplinary background. I think that background is great for a lot of things. I think in particular, one of the, the things I've sought to do in my center is I, I've come into it saying, look, the last 50 years, we've seen this flurry of, of invention uh, in biotechnologies, but we haven't seen a corresponding investment in our, our ethics, our philosophies of how we even cope with those inventions, right? And so one of the things I've realized was, was that this is precisely the space for an interdisciplinary non non-scientific expert in many ways, because it's, it, it's a place to develop the, the adjacent philosophical and ethical tools. And, and I know this sounds like, it, it sounds kind of like an audacious and enormous task, like, wait, who are you to begin to think about what, what, is, what is ethical in this domain? But well, I, I think what I've come to find is, is that, is that these, these ethics come from all kinds of places and the artists and aesthetic backgrounds that, 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 are kind of used to kind of seeing things in new ways and seeing beauty and things that maybe others don't and kind of finding an empathy for things which maybe seems almost ridiculous. You know, how do you become empathetic for, to, to microbes? Is it important to? Well, I don't know, but these are, these are, these are the, the, the kind of questions I'm interested in as a, as a person from, who doesn't necessarily need, in some ways I have less to prove in the sciences, as an artist and, and it gives me a lot gives me a certain kind of in to begin to think about some of the bigger questions alongside the technical the bigger questions that i think we we have we have to solve if we're to have an ethical relationship to the to the ecosystem so that was science knowledge is power nature lab by mckenna connors it's an ongoing weekly series you can find the archive on our website mediasanctuary.org and uh, she talks with a lot of scientists. And that concludes our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Mark Dunlay. And I'm Andrea Cunliffe. Thanks to our engineer, Sina Basilahiki. Remember to tune in every weekday to get your daily dose of local news. You can also listen via our Hudson Mohawk Magazine podcast and Facebook page. If you have comments, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. As a reminder, the Hudson Mohawk Magazine is produced by local volunteers. If you're interested in helping, shoot us an email at info at mediasanctuary.org, or you can join our weekly virtual Zoom meetings Monday nights, 7.07 p.m.
p.m., send us an email at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Thanks for tuning in.